Well, for the final message of the year, I was wrestling with what to speak on, and I realized that there's a question that I've been asked quite a bit over the last couple of years, and uh, even in the December series, and that is, you know, what about hell? Is hell a real place? We never seem to ever talk about it, but it's there. And so I decided that that would be the topic that we would tackle. And it's not an easy topic, and I'm certainly in half an hour not going to be able to say everything that should be said about it. But we're going to try our best to dial into it. And I need you to understand that, like many other things in the Scriptures, there is only a limited amount of information that God gives to us. And even at that, sometimes it's hard to understand. So... I'm not going to answer every question about it, but I hope by God's grace to give us enough insight that we can walk away making some decisions in our hearts and our minds and being better informed about a topic that Jesus actually spoke an awful lot about. You know, if you look at the movies that are coming out these days from Hollywood, and if Hollywood is a reflection at all about our curiosities or our fears as a culture, then it is obvious that we are very obsessed with the afterlife, with the supernatural. And unfortunately, in all of that, we're also very confused as a culture and huge misunderstanding about the afterlife, especially when it comes to understanding heaven or hell. The Gallup poll did a survey several years ago, a couple of years ago, in which they asked people, you know, what they believed about certain things. And about 90% of Americans responded and said they do believe that there is a God, and it's very important that you hear that, not necessarily the God that you and I know of that Scripture reveals to us, but they believe there is a God or some type of universal force or spirit that's out there. About 81% said that they believe that there is a heaven. And about 70% said they believe there is a hell or a devil. And again, the definition of hell and devil ranges all over the place. But at least it tells us that people, generally speaking, are very sensitive and very open and very interested in God and Satan, heaven and hell and, and, and all these things. Of course, when you ask somebody where they're going to go, they always say they're going to go to heaven. Which makes you wonder... Uh, who is going to go to hell, and uh, who decides who's going to go to hell, and what is hell actually going to be like. So let's explore that a little bit, and we'll be looking at the Word of God. I don't do this often, but I want to diagram a little bit with you, kind of putting in a picture uh, an understanding of this. So if you have your outline and your pen or pencil along with you, or want to borrow or rent a pen from somebody next to you, uh, you can do that. And uh, we'll look at this together, and I'll be using the board here as well as, as we do so. As we get started, though, uh, what I want you to do, and let me get this a little closer to us. What I want you to do is I want you to uh, draw a circle on your outline. And let's talk about our current reality here that we live in right now. So just draw, draw a nice circle. And you remember, I'm not much of an artist, so be patient. And then draw your stick person, all right? And then I want you to put a cross right up here. Now, the Bible makes it very clear to us that in order for us to gain heaven, in order for us to spend an eternity with God, 
it all begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear, and I believe this to be absolutely true, that you and I are not going to get into heaven without a relationship to Jesus Christ. Jesus made that very clear in John chapter 14 and verse 6. Why don't you read that with me? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. That's pretty clear and explicit, isn't it? He doesn't say, I'm one of several ways. He just says, I am the way. He doesn't say, I am a truth amongst many truths. He says, I am the truth. Romans 10, 9, Paul says, say it with me. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And let me just qualify that. We're not talking about a little bit of liturgy that I just, you know, I confess Jesus as my Lord. I just say it. It's not just saying it that counts. It's saying it from the heart. That is, if I sincerely, sincerely believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and sincerely put my faith and trust in him and live out that life, then I have the assurance that I belong to him. So we've got to get away from this notion that some folks have where it's just this quick little decision I make and I say, you know, I, I kind of get Jesus in my life like life insurance. You know, we're talking about an actual, sincere faith belief in Christ. And then 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. Let's read it together. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. That's the good news, isn't it? When I receive Christ, I become a new person. His new life now is in me. And my Christian life is learning how to allow his new life to take over my life. Surrendering myself to him on a daily basis. Letting more and more of Jesus live in and live through me. Now I want to read to you this next passage. Which is a challenging passage. Because it is so uh, spot on so to speak. That it actually kind of makes some folks a little nervous. But listen to what it says. Jesus said... You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. Jesus was speaking in that context surrounded by a lot of the religious leaders who believed that they had already figured out salvation by means of keeping the law and their own self-righteousness. And they looked at Jesus as, as a problem. His claim that he was God's son, that he was the means of salvation. They already had their salvation. So in a sense, what Jesus saying to them is, you know, wide is the road to hell. There are so many options, there are so many other ways that you can live out there and think it's going to lead you to where you want to go. But it doesn't. It leads you to destruction. Narrow is the way because Jesus refines eternal life to himself, to no other person and to no kind of teaching. He refines eternal life to himself and himself alone. He says, this is the doorway into heaven. 
John chapter 10, when he's talking about the sheep. You know, he's the gateway in. He is the only way. And those who, those who reject him choose for themselves a different destiny. C.S. Lewis once noted, he said that the abode of the, of, of the believers, those who find their abode in heaven, those who find their way in heaven, are those who at some point in their lives have looked to God and have said to God, Thy will be done. In other words, they have looked to the Lord and said, Lord, I want your will in my life. C.S. Lewis then turned around and said, but the abode of those who will spend their time or those who will be in hell are the ones who have looked, whom God has looked at and has said to them, thy will be done. So in other words, what C.S. Lewis is saying is those who end up in heaven are the ones who look at God and say, thy will be done. Those who end up in hell are the ones that God looks at and says, look, you refused me, so thy will be done. That is where you have chosen to go. That is your decision. So down here, I want you to write the word, my way. You know, in my research, I came across something interesting. That in Britain... The most popular song sung at funerals, according to the research, what I saw, is that old Frank Sinatra song, I Did It What? I Did It My Way. The second most popular song sung in Britain at funerals, according to what I was reading, is the ACDC song, uh, Highway to Hell. That's pretty scary if it's actually true, isn't it? But then again, look at the spiritual condition at our neighbors across the pond, so to speak, and it speaks an awful lot to it. And before we point too many fingers at them, we are not far behind in our own country, our own nation. We are a nation that's very interested in getting to heaven, but our way of getting to heaven is oftentimes our own way, well, the way we want it to be, not necessarily the way God wants it to be. You say, well, Pastor, how can a loving God send good people to hell? Because I know a lot of people, I work with them, they're my relatives, they may be my neighbors, who haven't necessarily asked Jesus in their hearts. They may believe in a different religion, but they're good people. They do good things. I mean, they're not like Hitler or Charles Manson or, you know, um, Osama bin Laden or whoever you in your mind can see as being, you know, worthy of going to hell, all right? These are, are, are good folks. How can a loving God do that? And that's really not a question. When somebody asks you that, they're actually making a statement. And the statement they're making is simply this. If I were God, if I were in charge of the universe, I wouldn't send a whole lot of people, Pastor, that you're saying are going to end up going to hell just because they haven't asked Jesus into their lives yet. Because I just know a whole lot of good people, and I think good people should end up in heaven. And all of a sudden, now I'm deciding who's going to go to heaven and who's going to go to hell based on what? My way. And you know who has the tendency to argue that question more than anyone else? Are misinformed Christians. Are misinformed Christians. Why? It's because we have a warped understanding of love and hate, good and evil. See, if I don't benchmark love against God's character and God's word, and good against God's character and God's word, 
and hate against God's character and God's word and evil against God's character and God's word, then I'm going to determine what is love and what is good and what is evil and what is hate based on my own perspective, my own view. And can you imagine if, if it were up to each one of us to decide who was good enough to get into heaven and who was bad enough to get in hell, the mess we'd have? There are, some, there are some of you that I wouldn't want you to be the one who decides that because I may not make it into heaven. You may not want me to do it because you may not make it into heaven. And there are some people that I might decide are good enough to get in heaven. You would look at it and go, how could you let him in? How could you let her in? Don't you know this about him and don't you know that about her? Don't you know what political party they were about? Do you not know what things they ever said or did? If you want to know what the world would be like, if it were up to us to decide who's good enough and bad enough, we'll just look at the world today. When man tries to take God's place and decide what the standards are going to be, it doesn't create more justice. It creates more, what? Injustice. It doesn't create more fairness. It creates more unfairness. You and I can't be the ones who decide what the standard is going to be simply because the fact that you and I lack a perfect standard ourselves. Only a perfect judge, only one who understands perfection, has the ability to decide how the standard is going to be set. And God's standard is perfect, and none of us are perfect. We all fail. And so God has provided a way for us, and the way is through His Son, Jesus Christ. So let's just get our bearings straight there. The only way into heaven is through relationship with Jesus Christ. And the only way into hell is to reject God's gift of salvation. You say, well, pastor, what about all the people who don't hear about that message of salvation? And here's my answer, and it's very simple. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry. But my answer is simply this. I trust God. I know that God knows what he's doing with those folks, and I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to leave it in his hands. Say, that's a cop-out. It's a pretty good one. I'm going to leave that to God to work out. All I know is that there are a whole bunch of people who've heard about God and His Son and are not making the right decisions. And there's a whole bunch of people who need to hear about God and His Son. And you and I need to get that message to them. Relieve them of the the misery that they live in today because they're not living by the truth. The truth that can truly set them free. All right, now, here's what I want you to do. Draw a second circle with me, will you? We're going to talk about something that's mysterious and not easy to understand. But the Bible seems to indicate that after this life is over, there is an existence that people go into that in the Old Testament was known as Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, and the New Testament, the Greek word, for the uh, Hebrew word is Hades. Sheol and Hades. The Hebrew word means pit or grave. The New Testament word Hades means the unseen. And so when you think about somebody who dies, suddenly they're gone. They were with you and now they're gone. Last night I got an email and uh, my former worship pastor in California where I ministered there, Dave Bassard. A uh, wonderfully gifted man, loved David. We worked together for several years there. Uh, he, had can- he has cancer and, and, and he went into hospice. And last night I was told he was in his final hours. And I felt such sadness in my heart for Dave. 
and his wonderful wife, Kathy. But at the same time, I know where Dave is going to go. But prior to Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, where did those in the Old Testament who put their faith in God and what he said, who made their sacrifices with a sincere spirit, where did they go? Well, the Bible seems to indicate that this Sheol or Hades is in two compartments and they went to what has often been called the bosom of Abraham. Now, to get more clarity on this, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. In a story that Jesus told, and scholars are divided. Some believe he's telling a factual story. Others say, no, it's one of his parables. I'm not going to argue it this morning. But I want you to hear this story because he gives us insight into this realm. Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus has received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm or gulf that has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, if they have rejected the truth already, as it's been staring them in the face, having somebody from the dead come back and tell them isn't going to really matter. They're so hardened in their hearts. What Jesus seems to indicate in this passage that I've just read to you is that this Sheol or Hades was divided into two compartments. And there was a gulf fixed between the two that nobody can cross. The Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. There are no second chances after a person dies. Those in the Old Testament who died before Jesus came to earth, was crucified and rose again, went to this compartment or this section called the bosom of Abraham. And there they remained because the perfect sacrifice for sins had not yet been made. Romans chapter 3 verse 25 tells us that God had passed over their sins by the sacrifices they had made. He had withheld punishment until his son made the final sacrifice and then they were liberated out of this. It was rendered vacant. So where 
Where do we find that? What are you talking about? Well, I want you to just follow along on a couple of passages with me. Again, we only know bits and pieces of this. Some scholars have divided over it, but this is, this is how I understand it as I look at the scriptures. When Jesus was on the cross, remember, he was crucified with two thieves, right? And one of the thieves looked at him and believed in him and said, remember me, have mercy on me, in other words. And Jesus responded this way in Luke chapter 23. It says, and Jesus replied, I assure you today, you will be with me where? In paradise. Many scholars believe that what this refers to is this section known as the bosom of Abraham. That in the three days that Jesus was buried, that he goes here and he prepares to liberate the Old Testament saints and to bring them, draw a circle up here, and bring them into the paradise that we know of today called heaven. In fact, it says over in uh, Acts chapter 2, let me just read it for you, the context, and then we'll look at a couple of verses there, that Jesus would not be abandoned to Sheol or to Hades. I'm going to pick it up in verse 24. Peter's preaching, it says, But God raised him, that's Jesus, from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, so David prophesied this, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with your joy in your presence. Brothers and sisters, we all know that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. Exalted the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you and I now see and hear. And then over in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul speaks these words, which are difficult to understand. He says, that is why the scriptures say, when he, that's Jesus, ascended to the heights, he led a crowd, okay, from here, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that it says he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world and the same time, and the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Notice what Paul is saying is just as Christ ascended, he also descended. First, in humiliation, he became a man here on this earth. But it seems to indicate that he also may have descended then into these regions, wherever this is, probably an entirely different dimension, not in the middle of the earth someplace like many have believed. That's just how we tend to see it because we think of death of someone being buried in the ground but in this dimension where it is that christ came here in essence showed them that he had fulfilled the promise that they'd all been looking forward to 
and he liberated them and translated them then into heaven because the sacrifice was over and finished. Now when a person dies, where do they go? Do we go to a holding compartment, so to speak, to a waiting room? No. Why not? Because the full sacrifice has been made. Christ has paid the price. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if Dave died last night or if he dies today, he immediately, his soul, who he really is, is translated into the very presence of God based on what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection. And if you die today as a follower of Christ, you have the promise that you immediately go into the presence of God. And when the Lord returns, he'll raise up your body and he'll join your soul and spirit to that body and you'll have your brand new resurrected body. Amen? So Paul speaks about in Thessalonians. But you say, what about people who die without Jesus in their life? What happens, what happens to them? Do, you know, are they, where are they? Well, Jesus made it pretty clear in Luke chapter 16 that they are here. Those who have been unfaithful. These are the faithful in the Old Testament. Those who are unfaithful, who reject him, who say, I'm going to do life my way. From the Old Testament, from the beginning of time, Genesis chapter 3 to this very day, this is where they go. And in this place, they experience torment. Now, if you read the Bible, it talks about torment in so many different ways in hell. Weeping, gnashing of teeth. Uh, fire, utter darkness. Understand those are probably not to be taken literally. All those words are the biblical writer's attempt to convey something to us that words cannot describe. Just as there are words that cannot describe the glory and the beauty of heaven. You can try the best you want. Sunrise, sunset, rainbow, gold. There are no human words to describe how, how awesome heaven is. There are also no human words to describe how terrible hell is. So what happens to these folks who are being held in limbo, who who are suffering, who are in torment? Well, the Bible indicates that just as these folks have been liberated in heaven, these folks one day are going to be eternally punished and sent into what's called the lake of fire, also known in the Bible as Gehenna. This word Gehenna is actually taken from a place in Jerusalem. Just the southwest of Jerusalem was what is known as the Valley of Hinnom. And in the Old Testament, when the kings of Israel rebelled against God, remember they started offering human sacrifices to the god Molech, and their children passed through the fire. And it happened in this region. And then later on, it became considered very unclean and refuse and garbage was dumped there. It became the garbage dump. And in Jesus' day, it was a dump that was smoldering and hot and stench. And people avoided it. It's where all the garbage went. Today, it's a beautiful park. You can walk and run there. But when Jesus was speaking about it, people knew exactly what he meant. It was a place where you disposed of something and then forgot about it. The lake of fire or Gehenna is that place where those who have refused Christ, in spite of the truth given to them, no matter how good a life they have lived because they refused to bow the knee to Jesus, this is where they spend an eternity in continual, continual torment. Because they have chosen it. Because 
They said, I'm going to do life my way. And God said, okay, then here is your way. And here's what it leads to. And folks, listen carefully to me. Once you die, there is no coming out of this and making your way to heaven. And so the teaching of purgatory, which the Catholic Church teaches, is a false teaching. Now, many of you come from a Catholic background, and I'm not here to to, uh, necessarily um, speak despairingly against the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church has taught many good things. But the problem I have with the Catholic Church is that it holds the Bible up as God's authority, but it also holds up its own traditions as equal to God's authority, and that's not the case. It's not true. The Bible in no place teaches purgatory. Purgatory is that place that the Catholic theology teaches that you go to and then you kind of finish paying for your sins. Depending how sinful you were, you could spend a little time in purgatory or a lot of time in purgatory. And how long you spend there depends on how many prayers are prayed for you and the old days indulgences were made for you to kind of get you out of there. Listen, that teaching wasn't even started till the 1400s. Well over a thousand years after the church had formed and the scriptures were made available to us. There's no truth in it. You cannot work or buy or bargain your way out of hell. Once you die, that's it. Then judgment is faced. And eternity is either spent with the Lord or with Satan and the demons and the fallen angels and those who have rejected and refused God. Now, you know, when you hear a sermon like that, there's a tendency sometimes to look at it from our own human perspective to say, I don't like that. But just because we don't like something does not mean that it's not true. (laughs) Right? Just because I don't agree with something doesn't make it a non-truth. And you and I live in a culture that that amazes me how we have practiced self-delusion. We have gotten to a place in our culture where what we do is we tell ourselves, if I don't like something, I'll believe what I like, as though if I believe what I like, it must be truth. Folks, just because you like something and want to believe it to be truth, if it's not the truth, it's a lie. It's false. It doesn't work. It's not reality. What is truth? We believe that the scriptures are truth. And we believe that the scriptures make clear heaven and hell, who goes where and why and who the ultimate judge will be. How important is this for you and for me? Let me close by just telling you a quick story that happened in our church this past summer where a younger man came in, heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and made a decision to receive Christ into his life. Just a month ago, that same man was in a car accident so severe that it severed his brain stem and he died instantly. So sad when I heard those words. But I was so encouraged to know that he found Christ here because I know, we know where he is today. Do you know where you're going today? I'm not here to scare you into heaven. But I'm asking you, do you know where you're going to go today? If you're unsure why, take the risk. 
If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, does it concern you that there are people today who are heading for an eternity without God? Does it burden your heart? The church in America today, I think, is pretty numb to that. We're so self-consumed. I'm going to ask you a question. If you knew that at 4 o'clock today, somehow you knew that I was going to get run over by a car at the intersection of Hobson and College or wherever it is. On the way out today, would you just shake my hand and say, I hope you have a good day? I hope not. I hope you'd at least look at me and say, I need to let you know Don't cross that street at 4 o'clock because if you do, you're going to get run over. In fact, I'd hope you'd show up at 4 o'clock and stand there to make sure I wasn't dumb enough to try. And that's our job. We are to lovingly approach people and at least make them aware of the truth. Why the truth is so important. We're to pray for them. We're to be burdened for them. As a church, we need to be burdened for this world. That's why Jesus left us here. That's why our mission is to make followers of Christ. That's why he put us here. That's why we sacrifice and do the strangest, silliest things and talk about multiplying and spreading our campus westward and any direction we can because we've got to let people know, don't cross the street. So you put Jesus in your heart. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father, it's such an important message that we just cannot afford to ignore or dismiss, Lord. Father, I don't like talking about hell. But your son, my Lord Jesus Christ, did repeatedly because it's a reality. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has not yet Open their hearts up to you to receive your truth, your son, into their life. Right now, Lord, would you just reveal to them that he is indeed the only way, the truth, and the life. With your heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, is there anybody here who would say, Pastor Dale, I want to invite Jesus in my heart. I I want to be sure this day because I want to spend eternity with him. And I'm not doing it just because I don't want to go to hell. I'm doing it because I'm sincere. I really want Christ in my life. Would you just raise your hand where you are, young or old, and let me lead you in a prayer this morning to receive Christ into your life. If your hand is raised, would you simply pray this prayer with me? Dear Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that you are the only way to heaven. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I ask you to forgive me this day. I ask you to come into my heart and take over my life. Be the CEO of my life. Be in charge of me. I no longer want to do life my way, but your way. If you prayed that prayer today, Christ has come into your heart. When the service is over, please come to Guest Center. Shake my hand and say, I prayed that prayer so I can give you some information, encourage you, and help you on your journey. But if you're a believer this morning, Maybe you need to confess to the Lord your insensitivity to those who are lost and perishing today. God, forgive us for how often we pass people by with no thought of where they're going to spend eternity. I pray that in this coming year, O oh God, you would drive us to our knees. Drive me to my knees. I pray that you give us a burden for the people around us. You cause us to pray and 
reach out and show them the truth by loving them the way Jesus loved. Lord, I pray that you'll allow us to make an eternal difference like we were able to do this year in one man's life who's now passed on to eternity with you. Today, Lord, I lift up my dear friend David. Whether he's with you or not, I don't know yet. But Father, keep him. Keep his family and comfort them during this time. We pray and we ask it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.